0: Uh, Well, good morning. I'm glad you guys are here this morning with us at Christ Community Church. For those of you who are new or visiting, my name is Chris Henson. I'm one of the elders here at C3. And uh, this morning, we're continuing in our series through the book of Romans. This morning, we're going to be in Romans chapter 5. If you have a Bible with you, turn there. If you need a Bible, there's one on your row. It's page 942 on the Bible on your row there. If you want to follow along with us, we'll also have the words on the screen. And so as Weston said, we've been working through the book of Romans, we've been looking at the, the nature of salvation, we've been looking at the way in which God has saved and, and redeemed us as people, and so step by step, verse by verse, we've been working through the book of Romans. And basically what we've seen thus far, just as a, a way of recap, or, or if you're joining us new, kind of wrap your arms around where we're at, we've seen Paul in the book of Romans basically say hey if you're a Jew or if you're a Gentile which that covers everybody there's there's really no way that you can save yourself right you're stuck in sin Jew or Gentile and there's no amount of good works that you can do there's no amount of law keeping that you can do that will ever override the problem of sin that we have in our lives and we all know this to be true don't we I mean, if we take a look at our own life, we go, man, even on my best day, even on the days where I am the most holy, the most godly, the most righteous that I've ever been, I am still prone to sinning. Even if I had a perfect day, were that to exist, I would wake up the next day and my propensity would be to sin against God. So this is a universal problem. Jew and Gentile alike are under sin and we don't have a way to perform our way to the kind of goodness or moral perfection that God requires. And so we need something else to make us right with God, don't we? We need something else to make us right with God, and the answer to that is faith. The answer to that is faith. We saw last week with the example of Abraham that Abraham was declared righteous. He was justified, declared not guilty before God on the basis of faith. Faith in the promises of God. And the promise of God ultimately finds its fulfillment for us in Jesus. And so the answer to the problem of sin, as we've seen here in the book of Romans, is that we as people must place our faith in the finished work of Jesus as the substitute for our sins, as the means by which we're justified, the means by which we stand before a holy God and are declared not Guilty, And so in light of all of that, what's going to happen today as we look at Romans 5 is we're going to pivot. Paul is going to help us understand if all of that is true, if everything that we've learned thus far in the book of Romans is correct, why does that matter? What's the response to that? How does that impact us on a street level? And that's where we're going to go today. But before we do that, let me ask you this question. From where you sit in your chair today, Would you say that you are hopeful and confident for the future? If you took that same question and you went and asked your neighbor, hey, neighbor, I know we don't ever talk because we're all a bunch of introverts anyway, but are you hopeful and confident about the future? My guess is that when presented with that question, many of us and many of those that we ask would probably say something that ended up looking like a fairly dim outlook for where things are at right now and where they're headed moving forward. In fact, um, I looked at the headlines from a number of major news sources just before the weekend, and I'm sure you can imagine where this is going to go. But here's a few samples of what I saw come across the screen. Inflation hits a 29-year high as energy costs spike across Europe. Real threat. A school board president writes the White House asking a letter of protection. This one was fun. Why October 19th could be a catastrophic day for the U.S. economy. Why COVID is killing rural America at twice the rate of urban areas. Draconian COVID policies are coming to the United States. 13-year-old shot at school, student in custody. I could go on and on. If you've looked at the news, you know that this is the language of the day. This is the world that we live in. If you take the news media at face value, it doesn't really seem like our current times or the future are things that we should be very hopeful or confident about. In fact, if you add to that the fighting and the conspiracy theories and the things that you might see if you're on social media as well, it's pretty easy to get the sense that things are headed nowhere good. But for as much groaning and despair as we may face toward the future if we look at the media and our current context and culture as believers, we are called to ignore, uh, not ignore, we're called to to look through our current context, our current situation to what lies ahead. And that doesn't mean that we don't pay attention to what's going on in the world around us, but it means that we look ahead toward what has been purchased for us by the blood of Christ. And so as those who've been justified by faith, we'll see together this morning that there is much to be hopeful about. So let's read Romans five. Verses 1 through 11 together, and then we'll begin to unpack the rich treasures of what our justification brings, both now and for the future. Chapter 5, verse 1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's Take a look back at verse 1 with me. Paul says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, therefore, in light of everything that we've seen in these last few chapters about the truth that it's through faith that we're declared innocent before God and pardoned from our sin, what is the result? The Bible gives us three answers here in the first five verses. If you look at verse 1, you see this. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. Peace with God. Notice what it says. It says peace with God, not peace of God. Surely, in Christ, you've experienced the peace of God, but it's important for us to note here that justification brings peace with God. Why does that matter? Because outside of Jesus, the Bible tells us that we are enemies with God. If you remember looking back at verse 10, it says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So outside of Jesus, we are enemies with God. We are at odds with him. As we saw back in Romans chapter three, outside of Jesus, there's no fear of God before our eyes. There's no willingness to submit to him. The way of peace is, is unknown. That doesn't mean that we're all the most evil version of ourselves as possible and that we live actively thinking about rebelling against God, but in our sinful hearts, we stand opposed to God. Colossians 1.20, great verse if you look there, says, Christ, by the blood of his cross, made peace. Which reminds us, that there's no peace unless it's made by Christ on the cross. There's a gulf that exists between us and God. But what does this remind us? Being justified by faith, we now have peace with God. It means that through faith in Christ, there's no longer any war. The battle's over. There's no more enmity, there's no more strife. God's eye is not toward your sin toward your mistakes and toward your failure, aiming to correct you, to punish you, to bring down wrath. No, in Jesus, that's removed as far as the east is from the west. You can confidently go before the Father, forgiven. Isn't that good news? We've been declared not guilty. You think about a courtroom scene. If, If the verdict comes down and you're guilty, your freedom is over. They put cuffs on you and you go away. If the the verdict comes down, not guilty, you walk out of that building free. The slate is is wiped clean. There's freedom being declared at peace with God. One of my favorite stories about peace, I'm sure it's one that you've heard as well, is the famous Christmas truce of 1914. Uh, In the beginning stages of World War I, British, the French, Germans, are, uh, are engaged in this vicious fighting along the Western Front in France. And if you, if you know this story, maybe you learned some more detail today. Basically what happens is the day of Christmas Eve, the Germans begin to put up trees along the trenches where they're hiding. And on those trees, they begin to put up candles and they begin to sing Christmas songs and the Allied forces hear the Christmas songs across the battlefield, they begin to respond by singing their own Christmas songs. And the Germans find a couple guys that know a little bit of English in the trench. They begin to take pieces of wood, put them up along the front of the trench, say, "We know fight, you no fight." It's all right. And so In response, the allies begin to find pieces of wood, and they put them up with signs that say, Merry Christmas. And within a few short hours, both sides begin to call to one another from across the trenches, saying, hey, let's meet in the middle. We're not going to bring our weapons. Let's meet in the middle. And so that day on Christmas Eve, these men, having been at war with each other just the day before, destined to kill one another because that was their job, enter no man's land and exchange gifts, cigars, whiskey, and friendship. In some places, the truce actually lasted for over a week. Men would get up and exchange addresses, exchange friendship. They would help one another bury their own dead. A German officer later wrote of the, the event, and he said, the English brought out a soccer ball from the trenches, and soon a lively game ensued. How marvelously wonderful, yet how strange it was. And thus, Christmas managed to bring mortal enemies together for a time. hundred years later, and the story of this truce remains a famous example of how peace was instantly made between two warring parties. It stands as an anomaly, right? Because this doesn't happen. You don't have people who are at war with each other instantly decide that you're going to stop. Something has to happen. And yet, as famous as this peace story is, the German officer was right. It brought mortal enemies together as friends, but it was just for a time. When we see that we've been enabled to have peace with God the story of peace that we have between Christ and us becomes that much more incredible because unlike what we hear about in the story of the Christmas truce, what God essentially did is, without any reason whatsoever on our part, no sign of us being willing to broker peace, no sign from us being willing to lay down arms, he climbed out of the trench and entered no man's land. And came to us in the trench and handed us an eternal peace treaty and said, this war is over and it's never going to start again. He brokered peace through Christ. He declared that the fight was over, that the war was done, and now there's friendship and peace and goodness. God declared that we are no longer enemies, not just a truce, but a permanent peace secured through Christ. So justified by faith, we have peace with God. The second result that comes from faith in Christ justifying us before God is that we obtain access to grace. Take a look at verse 2. It says through him we have also what? obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. You know, we don't often think about how incredible this is. Imagine with me for a minute what life would be like if we were Old Testament believers. If you were an Old Testament believer, you're thinking back to this time, keeping in mind these, these Romans. It's a mixture of Jews and Greeks. We saw when we were studying through Acts as a church that Jews from Rome came, Pentecost, heard the preaching of the gospel. So there are people likely in this congregation who understand what it looks like to go to the temple and to try to offer sacrifice to the Lord and, and worship him there. If you're an Old Testament believer living in Israel and you wanted to have access to God, it looked like this. First, you had a trek to the temple. If you were a Gentile, there was a court on the very outside. That's as far as you could go, and you could go no further. If you're a Jewish woman, then there's a court inside of that. You can go there, but then you can go no further. If you're a Jewish man, there's a court yet inside of that that you can go, and then you can go no further. And then there's the court of the priests. That's where the priests can go. And then inside the court of the priests, there's the temple, and inside the temple, you can go if you're a priest, if you're consecrated, there's a specific process that you need to go through. And inside the temple, there's the Holy of Holies, where once a year, the high priest goes to make atonement for the people before God. And it is in that place, through all of those layers, that you have access to the grace, mercy, peace, and presence of God. Recall what happened when Christ died, though. Matthew 27, verse 51. We remember this. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. That curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, God reaches down from heaven and rends the veil in half, reminding us and reminding the world that in Jesus, because of his finished work on the cross, that the veil that separated the world from his presence is now gone. In Jesus, access is no longer a privilege that only a select few get to enjoy, but it's a free gift that comes through faith in the finished work of his son, Jesus. In Jesus, access is given to the Father. We won't look at it, but but if you go and read the, the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter two, Paul does the beautiful job of explaining how in Jesus the, the dividing wall, those walls between the courts were dividing walls, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile is gone. And how now instead of being aliens and strangers, we are citizens who've been brought near through the blood of Christ. What a beautiful reality the grace of God is now freely available to us because we've been justified through faith in Christ. To know that in our sins, we have a Father who is gracious and forgiving. To know that in our life, He is for us, that He's working to make us more like Christ. So having been justified by faith, we now have access to grace. We have access to the Father. And the last... Result of our justification discussed here is that we have hope in the glory of God. See that in verse 2? Through him we also rejoice, end of verse 2, in hope of the glory of God. What does that mean? Hope in the glory of God means that instead of looking toward the future, instead of looking through the corridor of time and saying, when, when my race is run, when this is over, I don't know what to expect. Maybe wrath, maybe punishment for my sin. No, instead, we hope in the glory of God. We hope that when the race is run, when the fight is over, that we will see Jesus face to face and we will experience the goodness and the glory of God. Hope that one day, even though we see it from a distance now, we will be as the disciples were when Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration peeled back the curtain and showed his glory. as as only one could experience in the presence of the Father. We hope in the glory of God, knowing that the cares of this world, the suffering that we experience because of sin and brokenness will someday be exchanged for a seat in the presence of the radiant glory of Christ because we're no longer condemned, because we're no longer guilty before the Father, because we've been reconciled to him through faith in Jesus. And so it reorients our hope for the future. Having been justified, we have an outlook and a confidence now for what lies ahead, that nothing in our world can shake or take from us. We have hope in the glory of God. Now, does that mean that life is easy street for us from now until forevermore because we've been justified by faith in Christ? No, of course not. But because of what we gain in Christ, because of these things that are are bought for us by the blood of Jesus, having been justified through faith in him, even our difficulties and our sufferings are reoriented in light of the cross of Jesus. And that's what we see here in verses three through five. Take a look back with me there. It says not only that, so keeping in mind all these things, all these great things that have happened to us having been justified by faith, not only those things, but what? We rejoice in our sufferings. Our, our suffering, our pain, our difficulties are reoriented in light of everything that has happened to us having been justified by faith. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. Have you ever noticed, church, that the Bible doesn't question whether or not suffering will happen? You ever notice that? doesn't question whether suffering will happen or not. It's a given. Paul tells the Philippian church that it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ not only that you would believe in him but also suffer for his sake. That's why Peter will say in, in, uh, in 1 Peter 4, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that has come upon you. Because if, if we believe somehow that, that being reconciled to the Father, being forgiven for our sins, being given hope, for eternity because of Jesus somehow means that it's easy street here. We will be sorely disappointed. God often uses the refining fire of difficulty in our life to sanctify us. And you'll say, yeah, Chris, but but what happens when you are suffering and experiencing hardship because of sinful consequences and, and, and decisions that you've made? Surely those things exist, don't they? But God also has refining mercy for us where through no cause of our own, He allows us to experience things whose end result creates in us a more Christ-like character. And it's not because of anything we've said or done, it's because he believes that the version of ourself that looks more like Jesus is better than the one that exists today. And if it takes pain and difficulty to get us there, it is for our joy that we end up being conformed to the image of Christ. But what do we, we keep in mind here? We're reminded here that because we have the the end picture in mind, because we can guilt-free walk through life knowing that we've been justified, because we have hope in the glory of God, we can remain steadfast in our suffering, because we know that suffering produces endurance, which produces character, which produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. So the second kind of key idea for us this morning here is this, that justification helps us see through our suffering to our future hope that hope that we have for the glory of God. When I was a new dad, two young kids at home, uh, there was a gentleman in our church who invited me out for a weekly lunch. So we would go to McAllister's Deli, and we would sit and we would eat. For those of you who are new parents or those of you who can think back to your parenting days, you know that there's no amount of reading that you can do or podcast listening you can do or observing other people that can fully prepare you for all the challenges of parenthood, right? Right? There's, there's no amount. We're doing a parenting conference coming up in a couple weeks. That's really great to come to. You should be there. You should come and learn how to parent in a godly way. But Paul David Tripp is never going to be able to equip you with all of the lessons and things that you need to know to parent well. So we learn and we, we engage and, and we strive toward those things, but nothing can fully prepare you. And so I remember sitting across the table from this older gentleman in our church and I was just lamenting the difficulties of of the season of, of life that we were in, how hard it was, how helpless I felt at times, how difficult it was. And he just sat there and listened as I pleaded my case about how hard my life was and how difficult things were. And I was sitting there going, I'm opening your eyes to some deep mystery about unique parenting challenges I'm going through that you've never experienced before. Surely that's what's going on here. And I'm thinking he's going to have some piece of advice or some magic recipe from his 25 years of parenting that would help me out. And so he patiently listened to me ramble on and on and on and and give him my sob story. I'll never forget, he looked at me and he said, I've got a piece of advice for you. He said, hold fast to Jesus, it's going to get better. And I'm sitting there going, where's the five tips on how to be a better parent? Like, what's the magic bullet phrase that you can make your kids automatically obey you every single time? Like, you've done this successfully, right? Right? Like, where is that? You're chuckling because if you've been around for more than a minute, you know what's going on, and you ultimately, I think, if you can know what's going on, understand what the Bible is telling us here in verses three through five, which is that when difficulty and suffering come, we remain joyful in God because when those times of difficulty come and we press into Jesus and we learn to rely on him, we are able and we learn to endure, and as we endure through difficulties, Upon difficulties, we grow in our character, and as we grow in our character, we're being shaped and conformed further and further into the image of Christ, and when all of that is done, we have hope, hope that enables us to look at difficulty when it comes in our life and say, the Lord has carried me through many things like this, and he will carry me through this once again because it is in his character to do so, and so I remain hopeful this is not going to get the final say. There is an end to this. Whether it's that I meet him in glory or whether he carries me through to the other side to face another day, this suffering, this difficulty will not win the day. Jesus will. My friend could speak that way because he knew something that I didn't know at 25, which is that the more stories you accrue in life about how Jesus carries you through, the easier it is when suffering comes to endure and develop hope. And so we become hopeful instead of helpless, and we despair less and less, and we start looking to Jesus for help more than we look to ourselves, and we're able to do what Paul says here, which is rejoice in our sufferings. Rejoice when times of difficulty come, because we see how the Lord works faithfully for us in the midst of suffering. We, we know that if, if we bank on Jesus, that we're never gonna be put to shame, that's not, that's not a bad strategy. That's not a losing hand. If we play those cards, that doesn't end up resulting in disappointment. This hope in God, this deep trust in his saving and sustaining ability in our suffering is ultimately also a present assurance of what we expect in the future because of the promise of justification, isn't it? We can endure with suffering now and have hope for the future because we know that all of the things we experience here are just whispers of the greater story in which we live. The story that we'll continue to unpack here in Romans where, where at the end of the day, Jesus wins it all. Where the pains of this earth, the groanings of creation, are overpowered by the triumphant grace and return of Jesus. There are just shadows of a story that we're all experiencing in which Christ ultimately wins the day for his people. Brings them through suffering into glory. So you might say at this point, man, Chris, all that sounds really good. I definitely want this to be true of me. I want to be hopeful for the future. I want to be hopeful in my present sufferings because I've been justified by faith in Christ. But how can I have this confidence? How can I live that way? How can I be so bold to hold on to these truths and triumphantly charge forward in life with hope as my anchor? The answer is this it's your third kind of key idea for the day. We can be confident in our justification. We can be confident in God's love for us because of the way in which Christ redeemed us. What do I mean by that? Look at verses six through 10 with me. It says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. What Paul is saying here is, look, most people are not going to lay their life down for a righteous person, let alone a good person, although maybe on some rare occasion that could possibly just maybe happen. That's kind of his argument. Sorry, Pastor Seth, as resident uh, righteous person, the odds are not in your favor. Making the cut, it's from the Bible, so you know it's true, right? No, the Bible says here the reason that you can be confident in all of these things, the reason you can be confident in your justification, the reason that you can hold fast to these truths, the reason that you can cling with great certainty to the fact that you have peace with God and access to His grace and hope for the future that enables you to rejoice in the midst of sufferings and never be disappointed or put to shame is because the Bible says here that unlike the very rare circumstance where someone might look at you as a righteous person and lay down their life, God loved us when we were as far from lovable and worthy as we could be. And it was in that state, in that state of living, in that state of who we are as people, that Christ freely loved and gave himself for us. There's nothing that you or I brought to the table that made us somehow more worthy of redemption or justification. Nothing. We didn't create a case for ourselves that Jesus looked at and went, "Ah, that's kind of compelling. I might save you because you did that. That actually makes a lot of sense to me. No, there was no case to be made that somehow we would be worthy to receive the benefits of justification. And so, Paul tells us here, if it wasn't dependent upon you, But upon Christ, who rescued us in our sin, who justified us freely by faith, and who then, because of that justification, gives to us these things, peace, access, hope, then you can have confidence that these things will remain intact since your status before God has been secured in Jesus. You've gone from guilty to not guilty. You've gone from child of wrath to child of God. You've gone from enemy to adopted son or daughter. Is that not what we see in in verse 9? that if he rescued and redeemed us while we were still sinners, how much more will he sustain us and keep us from the forthcoming wrath and punishment for sin as his friends? Verse 10, if he reconciled us to himself when we were enemies, how much more will he save us and keep us secure by continuing to live, to intercede for us and sanctify us and mature us and conform us to the image of Christ? So our hope for the future is secure our ability to bank upon those promises of justification are are sure we won't be put to shame for trusting in those things because Jesus gave them to us when we had nothing to offer him in return. That's good news this morning. Uh, Luke alluded to this earlier as we sang through uh, the song earlier, The Everlasting Love of God, but the community groups here at C3 are reading through a book, Gentle and Lowly, and one of the things that that I have been encouraged by as we've read through that is that the author makes the point as he looks at scripture to say that many of us right having now been justified and saved by Jesus tend to look at our sin and our shortcomings and our doubts and wrestle to believe on some level that Christ's love for us or his willingness to bear with us or his satisfaction in redeeming us is somehow changed by our failures I don't know if that's been true for you I know that's true for me having been justified by faith, having been saved by Jesus, there are many days where somehow I think that my failures, my inability to do what's right even though I know better, somehow causes Jesus to look at me with disappointment, as though I should be better, as though I should be more holy, as though somehow he regrets his decision to adopt me as a son. And as we come to passages like this and the ones that we've been studying through in Gentle and Lowly, these truths remind us of something that's central to Scripture. And it's this, that Christ demonstrated his unchanging, eternal, uncompromising love for us when we were as far from him as we could be. So now having been reconciled and redeemed from our sin, does Christ somehow love us less when we as his children struggle in our flesh and when we fall into sin? No. No, that doesn't give us license to sin, knowing that we're forgiven. But it does give us license to rest in the forgiveness of Christ when we do sin, because we've been justified. We've been declared not guilty. That verdict is is etched in stone. It doesn't change. And so, what is our response to all of these things? That's what we see in verse eleven. These things cause us to rejoice. These truths cause us to rejoice because he's given us reconciliation through his blood. And that's your last key idea here, which is that we respond to justification. We respond to these truths of what happens to us, the so what of having been justified by faith, by rejoicing in God. Uh, This weekend is my middle daughter, second daughter's birthday. She got a gift yesterday. When you receive an incredible unforeseen gift, do you thank the gift or the gift giver? Her response upon receiving a gift was to thank her mother and I. Of course, she enjoyed the gift. She loved the gift. But her delight was in the gift giver. When we consider what we've, been gain, what we've gained through being justified through faith in Christ, it causes us to sit back and consider what a marvelous and incredible God we serve, that he would look on our plight, that he would consider how no amount of moral deeds or good performance could overcome the depth of our sin, and he sent Jesus to stand in our place for our sin that we might be reconciled to him. We consider that he's given us access to grace and peace and hope. We consider that he's given us confidence in him and in the hope of his promises, and He secured those things in his son. And we stand back and recognize that we've been reconciled to God through Christ. The response is, as verse 11 says, We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus. And so, the last thought for you this morning, church, is simply this. There may be a sense, right, as citizens of this world, as we look at the world around us, as we read what's in the media, we struggle through the difficulties and challenges that we experience. There may be a sense in which, as citizens of this world, we struggle to remain hopeful. But as believers, Believers were reminded this morning of what we gain through having been justified by Christ. And so we step into a confident, present hope in which we know that the obstacles and the barriers to relationship with Him have been removed. We stand justified before God through Christ, so we're free to come to Him. And we look forward with confidence to a future hope in which God ultimately saves and redeems all things. And we're secure in both of those hopes because of the way in which Christ redeemed us. And so, way we're going to respond today is simply by doing what the bible says we're going to rejoice in god we're going to rejoice in the finished work of christ by taking communion together reminding ourselves that through his blood and through his broken body peace was made access was made hope was provided and then we'll respond by worshiping god together let's pray